Welcome to this BJSM podcast and it's exciting to talk with Bert Mandelbaum. Bert's a good friend and he's a legend of American orthopedic sports medicine and really world sports medicine. He's renowned as the doctor for American soccer where he's taken care of the national team at World Cups. He's the doctor for the LA Galaxy. He's also the director of research in Major League Baseball. Bert, it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Great to be here. Regards from Santa Monica, California and Hello to Doha. Thanks. And we have a big range of listeners and often get three, 4,000 listeners to these calls. So they'll be driving to work and they'll be interested to know what you think about orthobiologics because you'll be speaking about that at the Isokinetic Conference in Milan. Yes, I will. And a very exciting area that really is burgeoning on so many different levels, Karen. How did you first get interested in PRP, if we start with that? Well, about a decade ago, um, I been talking to Ramon Cugat, who from Barcelona, a good friend of ours who's been taking care of football players there in the, the Spanish group, had done some of the initial work on on really concentrating platelets and, and noticing some of the biological effects and really began exciting me in terms of what was really happening in his field. And as a consequence of this, I came back uh, to um, my practice and we had a soccer player, uh, John Bornstein, played for the Chivas USA team at the time with a medial collateral ligament sprain, uh, and in fact uh, did the PRP injection and, and got him back instead of the usual six weeks, it only took three weeks, and we began scratching our head, and one thing led to the next, and it, it became quite exciting for everybody, and in fact, one of the first news stories uh, before the Pittsburgh Steelers was CBS uh, News World Report. He had done a, report, a story on this who really instigated some of the initial excitement in this area. And, and from us, from that point, uh, we began uh, saying there really is a biological effect, but we've got to do more clinical and scientific study. And focusing on ligaments as the logical extension, do you think there's scientific evidence now that PRP helps ligament healing? I think there is uh, on multiple levels, on the, on the basic science, animals, small and large, and even in the, in the clinical models, there is. But it's a complex game. It's not so simple. Uh, and when I say it's not so simple, I think the work of Martha Murray and uh, Kurt Spindler, uh, published in the Journal of Orthopedic Research, really shows us how complex that is. You know, for example, in an ACL transection model in canines, if you transect and use a collagen scaffold plus PRP or growth factors, you get a significant positive effect on regeneration and stability of, of a knee. But if you neglect to have a scaffold and you just use the PRP, you don't get that same effect. So this is a very complex system. And the analogy I use is that just because you have the desire to uh, create a building, uh, you need to have construction workers, you need to have the equipment, and you need all the bricks and mortar to go with it. Otherwise, uh, nothing will happen. The same is true in, in the game with PRP and, and stem cells. And what about early arthritis or advanced arthritis? Does it have a role there? You know, Karim, I think this is probably the most significant observation scientifically we have made. Uh, at, at the moment, and we're writing a systematic review, that there are five randomized controlled trials at this point globally that show a positive effect in patients who've had early osteoarthritis or chondropenia. 
And uh, it's quite exciting to see not only this, but even in comparison to high hyaluronic acid, there is a significant positive effect. And it's important also to be careful with, with just saying that. It's not all PRPs. PRPs, in this case, the ones who have very low white cells. Remembering that uh, PRP has a significant positive effect on, on messenger RNA transcription and ultimately turning on either catabolic or anabolic uh, genes. In this case, simple things such as a low white cell will turn on anabolic genes and neglect to turn on the catabolic ones. So at least in early osteoarthritis and chondropenia at this point, I could safely say there's a very significant effect based on five randomized control level one trials, and uh, we need to certainly do more on this, but at this moment, it's, it's a good time for that understanding. And the at BJSM underscore BMJ Twitter account has been a bit skeptical about PRP for tendon. Yeah, I think tendon also, but it's a very different connective tissue overall, and the desired effect based on that pathology is a very different one. Whereas the joint is, we want a very anabolic situation and we want no catabolic situation. In the tendon, which is like a desert for cells, you need to first have a very catabolic effect that induces a very anabolic cascade. So it's a very different biological situation that we need to, to have occur. And in that case, we certainly need scaffold, we need cells, and we need growth factors all to work in a very nice temporal harmony. Uh, so it's a more complex system overall, and I think it's good to be skeptical, but I think it's also important to recognize the biologic effects and how to optimize them accordingly. I think the the analogy to a construction site is is really important because just the way in a construction site, if you have the right if you don't have the right scaffold and you don't have the right construction workers you're certainly not going to have a good building when you're all done. And speaking of construction, do you think it helps reconstruct hamstrings after hamstring strain? Well, hamstring strains, which are the most common injury that we see in the sport of football, that's football, soccer, and baseball, is is really a, a, a conundrum on, on many levels because they're so common and we, we not only want to prevent them from occurring, uh, but also we want to prevent the re-injury. So the use of PRP in these situations has been common for that reason. Uh, most hamstring injuries take about four to six weeks to come back, and when, in fact, the injury occurs again, it takes even longer. So these become debilitating, and the ultimate goal is to optimize the time back to the field, but also prevent uh, injury, uh, re-injury. The problem at this point is that there's no randomized controlled trials, only a few observational case series that have shown a positive effect, but we need to see more as we go forward. And but the other part of your presentation in Milan at the football conference that Isokinetica are running in March is about stem cells. Now, this hype about stem cell, I read that it's going to cure diabetes, cancer, and help you not be late for meetings. I mean, what do you think about stem cells? I think the stem cell story is one that's really exciting, um, and not only exciting biologically, but also exciting because we have a societal conflict. We've created an aura around the stem cell, like it's going to solve everything in and of itself. Well, the stem cell story is much like we're talking about. You need this triad of regeneration that really requires 
the right stem cells doing the right things with the right growth factors and the right scaffolds. Any breach of the presence of cells, scaffold, or growth factors doesn't really allow a significantly positive regeneration of the problem. So it really requires this harmony and a temporal harmony of, of various factors to get together to really be successful in, in regenerative medicine. Great explanation, Bert, and I've heard it called an orchestra, and uh, it's tricky to get that balance. So thanks for those insights. And uh, let's move to exercise before we finish this podcast, really the second half of the call. And you pioneered the PEP program for ACL prevention, and really it's become an accepted wisdom now that ACL injuries can be prevented, if not lower limb injuries can be prevented by uh, balance and strength exercises. But how did this start? Well, it started uh, in a, in here, right here in Southern California. We had, uh, I've been practicing orthopedic surgery, and my practice uh, at the time in the early 90s was about 20% female and about 80% male in, in terms of ACL reconstructions. And around the mid 90s, we had a tremendous surge of young female players here in Southern California. And the problem was was that they were beginning to tear their ACLs at an alarming rate. And in fact, we, we know now that the rate is about 1.7 per thousand exposures, which is really quite significant. And when you compare it to males, it's somewhere between 0.2 and 0.4 per thousand exposures at that age group. So we, others around the country, Bill Garrett at Duke University, began observing the same thing. And we ultimately got together the American Orthopedic Society of Sports Medicine sponsored a consensus meeting in Hunt Valley, Maryland. And we got together, we looked at various variables. Uh, was it anatomy? Was it the environment? Was it hormones? The conclusion and consensus of the group that it wasn't, that it was biomechanical issues and neuromuscular control variables, the position, the type of deceleration, the type of land that was really a, the major factor that was the cause of ACL injury. And in fact, what we know now from Tim Mute and others, that it was really the, the dynamic valgus position, internal rotation of the femur, the loss of control of the hip musculature that really resulted in this in, increase of intertibial translation and ACL injury. So from that really came a, uh, the concept of prevention. Uh, we observed Chuck Hanning in Wichita, Kansas in the late 80s, and he presented this, never published it presented at AOSSM in 89, showing an 89% reduction in ACL injuries in young female basketball players. And you combine that with a skiing research at University of Vermont showing a significant reduction of ACL injury with the phantom foot mechanism. We felt that developing a composite program of five different exercises, one of which would be teaching an avoidance behavior and we ultimately called it the PEP program, which is a 15 to 20 minute warm-up program done right before soccer practice on the field, requiring nothing more than balls, a field, and, and some markers. And away we went. And we first uh, went on a, a systematic approach of biomechanically validating this with, in collaboration with Chris Powers of USC and finding a significant reduction of dynamic valgus just after six weeks of training. Our next step was to do the epidemiological uh, validation. The first year we found in a 14 to 18 year old female player that it was an 88% reduction of the PEP program 
after six weeks. The second year, there was a 74% reduction in ACL injuries, and this was a large number of the 1,900 um, female athletes versus the intervention group of about 1,800, so it's a large study. The Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, became aware of this, and the next year they wanted to sponsor a study in collaboration with FIFA, and they basically, in this randomized controlled trial, ultimately published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine, we found that there was a significant reduction in ACL injury done in females between 18 and 23, and that was in our NCAA Division I population, the highest level of, of soccer in females played in America. And so we were feeling good that we were sig- seeing a statistically significant decrease in ACL injuries from the, the training program. And FIFA came to us, Yuji Dvorak, who is the chief medical officer of FIFA, head of FMARC, FIFA Medical Assessment and Research Center, and basically said, well, this is great to do prevention. Let's start thinking of it from a global perspective, and let's see if we could prevent other injuries, including hamstring, groin, and ankle injuries. And we ultimately evolved with others to what is now known as the FIFA 11 Plus program, which is a program of 15 exercises. There's a randomized controlled trial by Sologard from Norway done in the same population of young female athletes. And in this randomized controlled trial, they found that there was a significant reduction in all injuries, including ACL injuries as well as overuse injuries. So this has been very exciting and ultimately led to us doing a study not yet published, we'll publish it this coming year, in males. We looked at NCAA Division I and two males last year and found a significant reduction in ACL and hamstring injuries. And again, this will be published uh, this probably in two, later 2014. So the story is one that started in, here in Southern California and has grown to FIFA at this point. And, and now in terms of prevention, is really focused on worldwide implementation of prevention programs, which is really a very important part of FIFA's medical mission. And did you want to add the Swedish study by Marcus Waldeen? How did that add further information? I think, once again, the, the, the Marcus Waldeen study also showed significant reduction in injury, and uh, it seems as though when we look at this program and we look at large populations in different countries, uh, we find the same effect overall. Yeah, and congratulations, Bert, on being a pioneer there. Your terrific RCT in the American Journal of Sports Medicine 2005, and listeners can see those Soligard and Baldine papers in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal. So as we come towards a close, um, those ideas were discussed by the NFL, so the American Football, the National Football League. Do you think they would work in that setting? Well, that's an interesting uh, case uh, to really think and talk about. We have been observing this year, our fellow observed that one of the first uh, ACL injuries that we saw in uh, in summer training was a non-contact ACL in this large football player. And we saw another one and another one. And in fact, overall this year, there's been an alarming increase of ACL injuries. Many of them are non-contact. And so we've got together a collaborative group, which includes others around the country, uh, colleagues of mine, um, Scott Rodeo from New York, working with the Giants, Tim McAdams, working with the 49ers, Rob Brophy, working with the Rams, 
and we've been looking at these videos, collecting and looking. Nowadays, it's easy to collect through YouTube, and uh, we can look at these injuries multiple angles, and guess what? Lo and behold, our big football players are doing the same things that our young female athletes have done and continue to do. In essence, uh, the game has changed. Football, American football has changed. It used to be a game that was played where they weren't going much side to side. It was really forward. Nowadays, with these what are called spread offenses and pistol offenses, these large players are playing in the open field and doing much the same that these soccer players have done, which is really this dynamic valgus internal rotating the femur, causing an increase in interotibial translation and ultimately tearing their ACL. Our mission here is to do the same thing, the same thing that we've done with soccer players. Look at the video develop a thesis in terms of how these injuries occur, and then develop a PEP program, a Prevent Injury Enhanced Performance Program for the NFL that hopefully will help improve the control training and levels of ACL injuries in this population. That's fantastic, Bert. Thanks for sharing all that wisdom. Um, before you go, we've got a couple of tough ones. Um, one is from Twitter. We invited people to ask you a question on Twitter. And Izzy Schneider from Germany wanted to know whether seated dynamometry, like Cybex, that sort of machine, provided value in knowing if a player was ready to return to play after ACL surgery and rehabilitation. Well, I think it has. But, but again, returning to um, the field and sport after ACL injury is so many different variables. I think the isokinetic ratios between the hip and the knee extension, abduction at the hip, uh, flexion, extension, and ratios are really very important, but they're only about 20% of the whole puzzle. We also have, de have to deconstruct the rest of sport, landing, jumping, stepping down, decelerating, shuttling, side cut, triple jump are all very important because that's what you do when you perform sport. I think if you're just using isokinetic testing, you really only have about 20% of the picture, and you'll find that your athletes are deficient in other areas. So it's really important to look at the whole comprehensive story before we make judgments about when the athletes truly are ready to return to sport. Thanks, Bert. And you've just made me realize the listeners are a bit confused about the term isokinetics in relation to the conference. Isokinetics is a sports medicine clinic in Italy and now in London, and uh, it doesn't refer to the, the dynamometry. So there's two separate things. And the Football Congress is a brand of sports medicine service and football congress and then there's dynamometry which is different last question but rod whiteley's a bit of a stirrer and he's from doha and he had the question do you think people need to have acl reconstruction or would the frobel study suggest that rehabilitation works well in quite a few high level football players well i think that i think that um it all depends on population you're talking about. If you're talking about football players attempting to run, jump, land, and cut, they need an anterocruciate ligament to do that. Um, I would be, I do not believe that there's uh, many athletes that could perform a game of football, soccer without an ACL. The forces on the anterior tibia are too great uh, in general. And without an ACL, I think it, it would, it's near impossible to play the game without uh, some type of healing, some type of connective tissue, 
some type of an ACL there, and I think that it's unrealistic, uh, despite the fact that, that that there are some studies showing that there are some athletes that can potentially adapt. I think it's also important to remember that ACL injury is a spectrum. It's not like being pregnant. It's not like you are or you aren't. There are some athletes that have a very low level of instability and laxity after an ACL injury. So I think the key question and the way to answer that question is that people who are truly ACL deficient, you know, have rotational instability, I don't believe can ever play football at a good rate. They put themselves at risk for higher rates of arthritis, uh, a second injury and more damage to the articular and meniscus injury. And I think that study is also very misleading. Uh, I think that uh, because they're not really stratifying at the level that they really should. So, so just to recap what I'm saying, I think if, if in fact someone has a low level of ACL injury and they have minimal instability, can they get by? The question is probably yes in certain numbers. But anybody who has significant instability, um, I'd be hard-pressed. I've never seen it ever in my whole career that anybody who has significant instability can play football. And Bert, I have heard you talk about stem cells, just to go back for a second, as being uh, like driving a Ferrari. Can you just share that one with us? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think that when it comes to the stem cell area, there's a tremendous amount of excitement about it, but there's also an abuse that we see worldwide. Everybody wants to have hope about their medical injury, their problem, uh, and, and unfortunately in medicine, uh, people are selling hope through the stem cell. Uh, like a, a Ferrari, the, the stem cell can have tremendous power, but you, not only you need the power, you need great tires and great alignment and, and great front end, and you need all the other details. The stem cell in and of itself isn't powerful enough to do all the things that it needs to do in the regenerative model. So I think we've got to be careful as to the abuses that we're seeing everywhere in the world, especially in places off the beaten path, promising hope through just the stem cell. I think we've got to be very careful not to abuse this. Bert, I'm really going to let you go this time. Thank you so much for giving up uh, Sunday morning in Santa Monica. I know you're heading out for a bike ride. Enjoy the bike ride, ride safely, and thanks for taking time with BJSM listeners. You've been listening to Bert Mandelbaum. You'll be able to hear him in person at uh, the football conference in um, 23rd and 22nd of March in Milan, Italy, and he's got a wealth of knowledge on managing ACL injuries in sports medicine. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. You can track us through Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ, and feel free to send suggestions for future guests. Thanks a lot for listening, and have an active day. Mm-hmm.